All right. I am going to ask if Ron would be willing to open up in prayer. Amen. All right, so we're on chapter 7, and we got through sections 1 and 2 last time, and now we're going to look at section 3, and we are talking about God's covenant and the way uh, that He has chosen to relate to humans. And I think this is important. I think it's potentially overlooked. Um, And actually, it becomes a huge, huge, huge field of study. Um, And if I admit myself, I am still working through many implications of covenant theology. Um, Talked a little bit last time about how how you do your covenant theology will touch on other things, how you see certain things. For instance, how you see the relationship between church and state will be impacted by your covenant theology. Um, your understanding of how Old and New Testament relate is, essentially is your covenant theology, um, your view on baptism, your view on church government. Uh, lots of things are touched on by your covenant theology. And so it's, it's, a, it's an interesting and a huge field of study. Um, and this, this confession is fairly brief and fairly succinct, and I think there's some wisdom in that because it doesn't want to uh, dictate every last piece for people who wanted to subscribe to this confession so uh, it doesn't get into all the messy details of how to do covenant theology. It just asserts that covenant theology is uh, a legitimate discipline and that we have to work it through to get to our implications. Um, and so we're going to discuss a little bit more on that now in section three today. And before we get started, is there any loose ends? Any leftover discussion from last time? Any questions that we should answer today? And maybe as you think of it, you can bring it up. One question that did come up, um, and I'll maybe address it before we really start into <clears throat> the section, is um, this format of worship that we follow here, which is called covenant renewal worship. Right? And it's a dead giveaway, the word covenant's right in it. <laughs> right? Um, and so how, how does that work? What is covenant renewal worship? What are we doing? Because, and I'll throw this out here, I don't know what your experience in church is like, but if you just look at, forget the, the words that we use in the bulletin and stuff, what we're doing isn't really different, right? Everyone goes to church and there's prayers and there's songs and there's a message. 
Right? So it's really not that different. So why do we call this covenant renewal worship? Why are there five C's? Uh, And essentially what it is is saying, it's not that different. What we want to do is to be self-reflective about what we're doing on Sunday morning. Right? So we don't want just a three-hymn sandwich just because that's the way we've always done it. Maybe that's good to do. And in fact, it turns out that it is good to do. But we want to be self-reflective. How is a worship service ordered? How do we structure it? What's happening? And so we work through, on a Sunday morning, we work through the five C's that largely follow God's pattern of relating to people through Scripture. Right? So we start with our call to worship. Which, again, if we think of this in terms of God relating to people, to different covenant heads, uh, this would be his call to Abraham or to Moses or whoever, come out of the world and come meet with me. Okay, so that's our call to worship. We're reenacting. God's calling us out of the world uh, to come commune with him. And then we have our time of confession, where we do a reading of the law, and then we do uh, an assurance of pardon. Uh, And that's essentially the cleansing that has to happen uh, before we are able to relate to God. So every Sunday, God's law breaks us, and then his gospel heals us. Not in the sense that we're unsaved and we need to get resaved every Sunday. Justification is a one-time thing. But in terms of a role play, to remember what the gospel is. Law and gospel, so we don't fall kind of into this trap that the gospel is, you know, essentially moralism. So the law and the gospel, God cleaning us, Um, is essentially the confession of sin that we do, followed by the consecration, which is just the the setting apart, the instructions, okay? Uh, Once you leave this tent, Abram, here's what you got to do, right? So this is the instruction, and so this is the the preaching part. When we open the Word and we preach the Word uh, is the the consecration, the the instructions that God has given us as we go out. Uh, On Sundays that we do communion, communion follows that, and so again, there's often a fellowship meal, Uh, God strengthens us. He gives us something. He gives us food and drink before we leave uh, and depart. And then, of course, uh, at the end is the commissioning, the benediction, the charge as we go out now to face another week. God has uh, called us out. He's healed us. He's given us instructions. He's strengthened us with food and drink. And then he sends us back out into the world uh, to be his agents there. Um, and so that's the pattern. So it's, 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 on the surface, it probably doesn't look that different. It's just an attempt to be self-reflective about this pattern that we see all through Scripture. And because these patterns are all through Scripture, um, some other people have made a connection with the different types of offerings that you see in the Old Testament, right? There's guilt offerings, right? We come to God guilty, so a guilt offering needs to happen, which would relate to our confession uh, part. Um, then... Once the guilt has been removed, there's an ascension offering or consecration, right? So we're being lifted up into heaven in a metaphorical sense, into the presence of God as we worship Him. Uh, And then there's a thank offering that's often given in response to that. So some have also made the connection between the different types of sacrifices that that makes a natural flow to to our worship services as well. And so... Uh, It's just an attempt, kind of a classical attempt, to kind of work through the the rhythms and the patterns that you see in uh, in your Bible. Um, And now that we're discussing covenants, that's probably as good a time as any to discuss it, although I think there is a chapter on worship here as well. So, um, 
Again, it's been a while since we've kind of worked through why do we order a service the way we do, uh, and that would be why. And if you're interested in further study on that, there's a relatively new book called The Lord's Service by uh, Jeffrey Myers, which is a good book to, uh, to read up on some of that stuff, on the self-reflective worship service. And there's latitude within that. You'll have different churches that kind of follow that outline, and the service will look somewhat different. It's not, it's not an exact blueprint. It's more of a structure, kind of a skeleton, and, and you fill it in uh, somewhat differently from church to church. Questions on that? Clear as mud? Now, when you see the five C's in the bulletin, we all know what we're doing. We all know what it relates to. Okay, let's look at paragraph three. This covenant is revealed in the gospel. It was revealed, first of all, to Adam in the promise of salvation through the seed of the woman. After that, it was revealed step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. This covenant is based on the eternal covenant transaction between the Father and the Son concerning the redemption of the elect. Only through the grace of this covenant have those saved from among the descendants of fallen Adam obtained life and blessed immortality. Humanity is now utterly incapable of being accepted by God on the same terms on which Adam was accepted in his state of innocence. Okay, so the first thing to note here is that everybody is in covenant with God. Everybody. Okay, even unbelievers. They stand in relation to God as covenant breakers, okay? But it's on the basis of a covenant that they stand before God. Believers stand uh, before God on the basis of Christ fulfilling all these obligations. But everyone is somehow covenantally connected to God, either in judgment or in uh, grace, either in Adam or in Christ. And it starts with the promise first revealed uh, in the garden to the woman. So who wants to take Genesis 3, 15? Gord? Okay. Okay. Very good. One of my favorite passages. We just looked at that one at Christmas time. Okay. So what's being promised here? Did the serpent get his head crushed that day? No, he didn't. Who finally crushed the serpent's head? Yep, that's right. Just because it's a Sunday school answer doesn't mean you have to be ashamed. (laughs) Yes, it is. It is Jesus. Crushed the serpent's head. And I gave a few little clues for how typology works or how these covenants unfold. Who were some typological head crushers in the Old Testament stories? I'll give you a hint. There's actually a woman who typifies this head crushing pretty good. Deborah, yeah, in one sense, yeah. Jael. Jael is a type of this, right? Remember Jael? The godly woman who takes a tent peg and smashes it through uh, the head of um, Sisera. There we go, yes. Okay. Uh, if you ever come across those stories in your Bible and think, what is, why on earth would God include that in the Bible? Okay? The default setting would be this. If you don't know what to do with the story, 
just think, how does this pattern the gospel? Okay? Think connected to the big story of redemption. How does this connect to that? Why would God include a story about a woman who crushes a king's head? Well, because of Genesis 3.15. Okay? Because a woman's son is finally going to come and crush a serpent's head. That's why J.L. has her place in Scripture. Okay? Because she is in that line of women who is going to bring out uh, the skull-crushing seed of the woman. <clears throat> okay, what else is there in this passage? Why, why is it mentioned that it's the offspring or the seed of a woman? Genealogies always work through men. Why a woman? Virgin birth? Yep, that's right. Because Jesus is not the seed of a man, right? Yep. That's right. It's a reference to the virgin birth, to Christ's sinless nature that he uh, receives through the virgin birth. Okay? And how is this seed's heel crushed? Or not crushed, but bruised? What's that a reference to? The cross. Yep. Jesus doesn't escape completely unharmed, right? In regards to his humanity, he is harmed, and quite literally in his heel. Hands and feet are nailed to the cross. Okay, so there's lots of uh, typological, kind of lots of symbolic significance to the promise that God uh, gives to the woman. Okay, so this is the first promise of salvation that we see in in the Bible. So the first time the gospel appears in the Bible is in Genesis 3.15. But it gets developed through history. It says, after that, it was revealed step by step until the full revelation of it was completed in the New Testament. And who wants to take Hebrews 1.1? Have a volunteer. Kevin, Hebrews 1.1. Okay. Actually, do you want to go ahead and read the first three verses? These cut off sometimes a bit unnaturally. Okay. Okay. So it's revealed step by step until it's completed in the New Testament. So Christ is the one who actually accomplishes this. Okay. He brings in the actual new covenant. He ushers it in um, with his completed work. And you'll notice here the shift in tense in verse one. So it's talking past tense. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke past tense to our fathers by the prophets. And then you see a shift in time. But in these last days, okay, so there's a shift in era uh, from one side of Christ to the other side of Christ, and now he is spoken by his son. Okay, the son did his work, he upholds the world, and he takes his seat at the right hand of the father. Okay, so this is the completion um, of all these covenant promises are wrapped up uh, in Christ. And maybe, well, no, let's go a bit further before I flesh that out a little bit 
between some of the approaches that people take here. Um, this covenant is based on the eternal covenant transaction between the Father and the Son concerning the redemption of the elect. And then who wants to take those two? Who's got Second Timothy? Dave Weeb warned me last week that he is a very tender, thin-skinned guy, and I should never draw attention to him. So I'm going to ask Dave Weeb if he would read from First Timothy. And who wants to take Titus? Keenan. Okay. Go ahead whenever you're ready there, Dave, First Timothy. Or Second Timothy, pardon me. That's right. Yeah, do do eight through yeah, good. Okay. So you see again, Christ is the basis for our salvation, right? It, it's all wrapped up in Christ. He is the the point at which this is all headed. And then Kenan, Titus. Okay, so again, it's clearly that it's Christ who ushers in the New, Test- uh, the New Covenant, okay? Christ is that covenant head. He is the second Adam, and it's on the basis of his obedience. Um, and we often think, truly, rightly, who had, if you grew up in a Christian home, who grew up with a good conception that Jesus died for your sins? So God put your sins on Jesus, um, and he paid the penalty that you deserve for your sins. If you grew up in a Christian home, did you get a good conception of that? Okay, I did. Okay, Who learned equally clearly that all the covenant laws, all the covenant stipulations that God put on all his people, all through history, that Jesus had to obey that as well? And so Jesus earned the righteousness that you needed. So not only do your sins go on Jesus, but his righteousness gets put on you. Who learned that part of the exchange? That would match my experience. I did not learn that. I didn't learn it. I knew Jesus died for my sins, and that's absolutely true. But if God, if that's the only transaction that happened at the cross, where does that leave me? Morally neutral. Okay? I still, I, I, my sins are gone, yes, but I'm morally neutral. I still don't have the righteousness that I need to stand before a holy judge. Okay? So just as important as your sins being put on Christ is Christ's obedience and his righteousness being put on you. This is called the great exchange. Okay? Uh, and it's, both sides are equally important. And so all these, we talked last week, all these covenant heads who failed... Okay, and who are those five covenant heads again? Let's go over in chronology. Who was the first one? After the fall, who's the first covenant head? Noah, followed by 
There's, there's one before Moses. Abram, yep. And then we had Moses. And then David. And then lastly, and perfectly, Christ. Okay? So there's first four. Who of them lives an upright, righteous life and fulfills all the conditions that God put on them? Not one. Okay? In some way, each one of those men fails. And we read about their failures in the Bible. Okay? And part of the accounting of all their failures is to help God's people through many hundreds and even thousands of years anticipate, finally, we need a representative. Finally, we need a hero who's going to do this all the way. Okay? And God tells stories slowly. So there's thousands of years building up to Jesus. Why are there thousands of years? Well, because we learn very, very slowly. Okay? God needs to tell the same stories over and over and over and over and over again so that we internalize them, so we get it into us, so that we understand the significance of what Jesus is doing. Okay? And so he rolls these covenants out very slowly, and Jesus fulfills each one perfectly, which is why he can give his righteousness to us as well as to receive our guilt on top of him. And I'll stop there. If, if most of us did not grow up with a good conception of how Jesus' righteousness is imputed, and imputed just means accounted to, to us the same way that our guilt is imputed to him, does it make sense that this is as necessary a piece of the puzzle? It wouldn't, well, no, not exactly, um, because this is objective. This is like a court declaring. This is God's courtroom declaring you are righteous. Okay, if you put your faith in Christ, the way God sees you personally is perfect. Holy, 100% righteous, forensically, in terms of that's the ruling in God's courtroom, is you are perfect. Okay? And everyone in this room who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, forensically in God's courtroom, is 100% righteous, perfect. Not because you've pulled it off, but because Christ pulled it off for you, and now you're covered in his righteousness. And, if you're like me, everyone in this room still struggles with sin, right? Who struggles with sin in this room? Yeah. Okay. So the sanctification is the kind of the real-time working out of that, okay? So the day we're converted, God says you're holy, and your actual performance is down here. As we move through the Christian life, those two get closer and closer, never perfect. But your sanctification is the way we work it out, the way we represent what God has named us, right? He's called you a Christian. Your sanctification is growing in conformity to that, but it's never perfect. Um, And the righteousness that Christ puts on you, I would say, pertains to your justification, to being declared righteous. So at the moment after your conversion, you have full assurance, regardless of sin left in your life, you know with certainty you're going to heaven. And your sanctification is just every day walking in grace a little more, a little deeper. Does that make sense? Here's, a, here's another question. Who, who did not grow up uh, with a clear distinction between justification and sanctification? This was a real cloudy area for me. Okay? It kind of all got thrown into a blender. I know we're saved by grace and Christians are supposed to be good, but it's kind of all this... You know, it's like a cocktail of justification and sanctification, and, and I couldn't, 
I knew those words, but I didn't, I didn't see how they related really to each other. So for me, this was a very cloudy conception that I had. Okay? And these two, think of it like links in a chain. You, they're not the same thing, but you cannot have justification without sanctification. Okay? So when I was a kid, there was this... Uh, well, there were some teachers that were talking. Who's ever heard of this expression that, um, you know, someone was saved, but they haven't made Jesus the Lord of their life, right? Uh, I've accepted Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord, right? So it's kind of two steps. Um, now, question, can you receive Jesus as Savior without accepting him as Lord? It's a package deal, <laughs> okay? Either you take him as a package or you reject him as a package, but you can't there's not two-stage salvation where, um, you know, the Holy Spirit won't do any work on you after your conversion, and then there's like the second step of Christianity later when you make Jesus Lord of your life. If you're saved, He is Lord of your life, and we've got to start walking in that. So these chains are linked together, but they are distinct from each other, and it's important to see that they're distinct, not separated. This is one chain pulling on the same project, uh, but it's important to see these chains are distinct because otherwise we start consciously or unconsciously getting caught in the trap of works salvation, right? Like we're justified by our sanctification. I'm going to be saved as I put sin to death in my life, uh, and that's also a distortion. That's not right, okay? You're saved solely on the basis of Jesus, uh, but when you are saved, you're born again. That new heart desires to grow in conformity to the Word of God, okay? So sanctification is necessary, but it's it's not the exact same thing as justification, and I'm not sure if I'm explaining that well or not. But does that, does that make sense? Am I answering your question or am I misunderstanding? Okay. Uh, where were we here? Um, well, when we talked last week about... Uh, uh, there's also a covenant within the persons of the Trinity that they're all working in the same direction to save uh, a people for, for God's glory. Okay, and that's called the covenant of redemption. That's the agreement that the three members of the Trinity have that they're all working for the same aim. They're all doing different things in the gospel, but they're all working for the same aim. So they're not three separate parties kind of doing each their own thing. Uh, they're working with a common aim. Okay, so it's the Father who requires perfect justice, it's the Son who accomplishes perfect justice, and it's the Holy Spirit who applies that to individual believers, okay, who puts the gospel in our heart. So they're all doing different things, but they're all working for the same uh, basic aim. Further questions so far? The concept about Jesus fulfilling where all these patriarchs and all these men in the Old Testament failed. Can you see how important a concept that is? That there's only one, yeah, there's only one hero, ultimately. And this also, I think, shows again and again the importance of being familiar with our Old Testament. Okay? Does it make sense? So think of what we've just been talking about. Does it make sense 
to say, well, the Old Testament was the Word of God. It used to be the Word of God. I always use the picture of the Professor Emeritus, you know, the guy that did his 50 years of service, and now he's kind of not real sharp anymore, so they just kind of keep an office firm thanking him for his years of service, right? I think a lot of people see the Old Testament as the Word of God Emeritus, right? Thank you for your service. We'll keep an office here for you, but you're not really relevant anymore, okay? Uh, And that's a, a poor approach. The Old Testament, right now, today, is the living Word of God, okay? The black letters are the Word of God. And so I've got, if it helps you follow dialogue, there's nothing wrong whatsoever with red letters in your Bible. Uh, Just keep in mind that all the words of the Bible are red letters then, okay? The words of Moses are red letters because they're Trinitarian. Moses got those words from God, so those are also red letters, okay? For example, but really all of the Old Testament is red letters because it's all breathed out by God. So don't don't see... uh, you know, two tiers of the Word of God, that the red letters, that's the really important stuff, and the black letters is kind of second tier. The red letters only make sense in light of this. So if you've got no Old Testament, none of these stories, none of this happened, there's no Noah, there's no Moses, there's no Abram, and you just drop Jesus into the story, does the story make any sense? None whatsoever. Then he really is just a Jewish carpenter who got caught up in an unfortunate time of brutal history, okay? And his friends started to create myths about him after the fact because they loved him so much, okay? And we leave ourselves open to attack from unbelievers when we don't give the Old Testament its proper place because then they have a case when they say Christians, you know, Jesus just dropped into the story and and we don't believe our Old Testaments anyway, okay? This is deeply, deeply important stuff. And I've mentioned by name, and I will again because he's made it back in the headlines today. I've mentioned Andy Stanley by name a few times. He's the guy that's been teaching Christians to unhitch uh, the New Testament from the Old Testament. Who, who knows that name? Andy Stanley, right? Unhitch, unhitch your Old Testament. And Andy Stanley's saying in our culture... To use the Bible as our apologetic doesn't make sense because people don't accept the Word of God. So he's not basing uh, his apologetics on the Bible. We need to find other ways in. And because the Old Testament is such a hindrance to so many people, we should just kind of leave it off to the side uh, for a while. Okay? If you know your church history, you know that Andy Stanley is committing a very specific heresy, and you know where it's going. And Christians who know where it's going will say, I think I know where this is going, and of course everyone at Christianity today says, oh, that's very uncharitable, right? What a poor testimony you have. Boo on you, you're not being charitable. Uh, And then four years later, Andy Stanley says exactly what you knew he had to say following, if you follow his work, he's just come out now and... Great big evangelical leader. His father was part of the conservative resurgence of the Southern Baptist Convention. He is fully embracing now of LGBTQ ideology. Okay? He got outed this week by a bunch of pastors that he was in a, in a meeting with, and now he's not hiding it anymore. Okay? Andy Stanley is following the force of his own logic. He has to. Okay? The Old Testament used to be the Word of God. There's no kind of covenantal ties keeping Old and New Testament together. God's law is arbitrary, we're living in a different time, off we go, okay? 
It's, it's heretical. It's been done before. You can see it from a mile away if you know this stuff. And it shows again, we have to see one unified word of God. Who saw that in the headlines this week? About Andy Stanley, North Point Church, that he had made the headlines. Okay? He's been on a bad business for a long time, and he's finally seeing the fruit of bad hermeneutics. <laughs> well, yeah. and he's a very good communicator. I don't know what happened in his heart. What's happening, I think, generally, yeah, and you're right, he's not the only one. How many deconversion stories have we heard, right? Joshua Harris and musician after musician after musician. Um, Some of them claim to be Christian for a little while. Um, John Piper's son, I saw he did a TikTok just absolutely brutalizing Christianity this week. Like, what happens? (laughs) You're literally John Piper's son. You know better. And you could say the same about Andy Stanley. I mean, Charles Stanley, whether you like him or not, was a conservative Baptist minister. How does this happen? How's that? And that's a good point. He'll work twice as hard for the church, right? Yep, that's fair. That's a fair comment. Well, and, and that is it. Intellect is a double-edged sword, right? It's, our minds are tools, but they're tools in the service of someone, right? And so you've got brilliant Christian thinkers, and thank God for them. We need them. But we also have brilliant unbelievers, right? Um, and they are also serving their God, right? So when Christopher Hitchens is in a debate with Douglas Wilson, they're both pulling out their Bibles, right? Douglas Wilson's looks like this, and if you ever want to see how two brilliant men who are kind of equal sparring partners, the collision series between Douglas Wilson and Christopher Hitchens is tremendous because they're friends. They like each other. Like, they actually like each other. They can exchange barb for barb. They're both wordsmiths. And it's clear they're just, they've got different gods, (laughs) right? And so it's just, it becomes a contest of gods. Both, I'm sure, would score roughly equivalent on an IQ test. But they're, they're both using their sharp minds in the service of their God.
Um, and this then causes the question, is Andy Stanley regenerate? And based on everything I'd say this week, I would have no reason to believe that Andy Stanley, I can't see that. Maybe he'll repent. Maybe he'll come back. But based on this this week, I, I would have no assurance that Andy Stanley truly has been born again because his words are betraying who his God is. And it doesn't, it's looking less and less like it's the God of the Bible. Yep. Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of the age? And this is, we talked about it at men's night. Apologetics. I'm doing this at Miller and I'm loving it. And it's just so important. Let's just cut the extra steps and just admit this is a contest between your God and my God. Let's save the extra steps. It's a contest. Whose God is going to answer? I'm going to go to my Bible and you're going to go to yours. Right? Whatever your Bible is, whether that's popular opinion, the spirit of the age, science, you name it, we're both going to our Bible, we're both appealing to our God, everyone has a God, Romans 1 is clear, let's just be honest. Can your God account for this, 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 and this? No, he can't. Your God's a failure. Can the God of Scripture account for this, this, and this? Well, yes, he can. Right? Get in their car, test drive their God. Their God's going to be a failure every time. And so eventually... One of the proofs, maybe the strongest proof of the Christian faith, is what's sometimes called the impossibility of the contrary. Try all the other ones out. They all have internal inconsistencies. Okay? They all are impotent. And so eventually you're left with not atheism versus theism. You're left with everything versus triune God of the Scriptures. Okay? We're not arguing for general theism. Theism can't forgive your sins. The triune God of Scripture can forgive your sins. Okay, so we're not arguing for the existence of God. We're arguing for the triune God of Scripture. Okay? This is, Zeus can do certain things and, and Allah can do certain things in a philosophical sense, but we want biblical Christianity. We want people to be converted, not just to admit, yeah, there probably is a higher power. Okay? They have to confront this God, the real God. Amen. Yeah. And to bring this back to the theme of covenant, this shows again, we cannot just enter and exit the story where we want. Ideas have consequences. Okay? If you're on a direct flight from Winnipeg to Orlando, you can't say, well, I'd like to get left off at St. Louis. doesn't work that way. Your ideas are going somewhere. Okay? Women don't stay three months pregnant. It's going somewhere. Okay? And Andy Stanley has given birth to his monstrosity. Okay? As do the friends in your own life who start to lose confidence in the Word of God. They will not stay three months pregnant. A baby's going to show up, and you're going to see where this was going uh, all along, and it's a bad business. <clears throat> um, let's keep going here. We might not finish. 
because I wanted to discuss again a little bit how this impacts other practical things between genuine believers, Uh, but let's keep going here. Only through the grace of this covenant have those saved from among the descendants of fallen Adam obtained life and blessed immortality. Humanity is now utterly incapable of being accepted by God on the same terms on which Adam was accepted in his state of innocence. And here we've got a number of texts again. So who wants to take Hebrews 11? Jolene, who would like to take Romans 4? Alfred? Acts 4? Caleb, you were itching your forehead. That's close enough to a raised hand. (laughs) Sorry. I know you can handle it. You're a tough guy. And John 8. Who's got that? Tyson. Very good. Okay. Hebrews. Okay, you know what, I'm going to break my promise because of what Julian just read about how this is promised. I'm going to explain one bit here um, between Protestant kind of evangelical genuine Christians, how they see different covenants and why we have people. And if you grew up like me, you'd be surprised how many people that are evangelical heroes believed... Uh, practice baptism quite differently than we do, for example, right? So think of Martin Lloyd-Jones or J.I. Packer or Francis Schaeffer and all these guys, and if you grow up and you, you just grow up knowing uh, only believers' baptism, then you're surprised, well, how do these people arrive at a position in which they're baptizing the babies of believers? Uh, and it's essentially where they tie these covenant promises together, um, In that form of doing covenant theology, what you're saying is that the new covenant starts with, they'll put it at different places, but it starts in the Old Testament, probably with Noah, and so we're in the new covenant back there, and so there's just different heads of the new covenant, okay? And Jesus is the last and perfect head, but they would take more of those forms from the Old Testament and apply them today. And so if circumcision marked the children of the covenant in the Old Testament, and baptism is the sign of the new covenant, what should we do? We should still circumcise our babies with baptism, okay? And so these Christians, they practice believers' baptism for new converts, but they're saying that what we, most of us would be used to as child dedication, let's say, they would do it with water, with baptism, because that baby is being marked out as a covenant child, not saying that that child is saved or will be saved, but marking them out as, uh, as, a, as a member of God's covenant family. And later, if they make a profession of faith, they are allowed entrance into the church as members. But that's how they would see that. So they would see a very direct connection because it's all happening in the new covenant and there's just different administrations in this new covenant that we carry on that form of circumcision in the form of baptism today. Okay? So, uh, believers' baptism 
holds by far the biggest market share in the church today, but that has not always been the case. So if you look at Anglicans or Presbyterians or Lutherans or Methodists, um, they practice infant baptism on that basis to a large degree. Um, And Baptists, we say, well, it doesn't quite work that way. It works more like everything in the Old Testament is the promise, and the New Covenant is only ratified with Jesus. So it's not the New Covenant back there, it's a covenant of promise. It's looking forward to Jesus coming. Therefore, the forms can change. So baptism does not replace circumcision. Circumcision was a sign back there, baptism is a sign now. And so you do your covenant theology differently. Uh, and we won't, well, I can gladly answer questions on that. But if, if you're going to debate believer's baptism and infant baptism, just based on the Bible verses that usually get debated, everyone goes home knowing that they won that debate. Because almost all of the arguments are arguments from silence. Right? Cornelius and his family were baptized. Right? How many household baptisms are there in the New Testament? Several. And so the Presbyterians walk away. See? It's, <laughs> how do you guys not see it? His household was baptized. Okay? Dad converts. Everyone's got to get baptized. How do you, how do you Baptists not see it? And we go home and say, yeah, as many as the Lord called to himself. Yeah, the household was baptized because they converted. How do you guys not see it? Why are you still getting your, ba- your babies wet? <laughs> right? It's obvious. We're in the new covenant. Things have changed. Uh, and so this is an intramural debate, what should be a friendly debate between genuine evangelical Christians. I would be unhappy to say that Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox and Francis Schaeffer and J.I. Packer wouldn't be allowed here. <laughs> okay? Uh, or to say that they're not believers. Uh, but I'd also be unhappy to, uh, to see that, that there's that direct a connection between circumcision and baptism. I don't think that's a necessary connection, but it's important that we understand how they get there. Because if we do this wrong, we assume everyone who's different than us, oh, so they're, they're like Catholic? No, not at all. Not at all. Catholic baby baptism is a very different thing than Protestant baby baptism. Catholics, when they're baptizing their babies, are saying original sin has been removed. This baby's will is now free. It was under original sin. Now its will has been freed. And so now that this baby has lost its mark of original sin, now this baby can cooperate with Mother Church uh, and and move into the sacramental system and be saved. Uh, And as far as I'm aware, no Protestants who practice infant baptism say that. There's some kind of a covenantal marking but very few, if any, would say it's a saving sacrament like Rome would say. So it's a different kind of thing. And again, if you just debate the baptism verses, everyone goes home thinking they won. What's going to settle this is how you understand how the covenants relate to one another. If it's promise or if it's actually new covenant uh, with different heads or different administrators. That's the baptism debate in three minutes, and that will have solved nothing other than create confusion. But at least be aware... <laughs> Uh, of how people arrive at their uh, positions. We're at 20 after. Um, Do we want to finish these verses, or should we save it for next time? Save it? Okay. Then why don't we save it? We'll know that we went through the first one, uh, and then we'll pick it up there next time. Any other outstanding loose ends here? (laughs) 
Yes, you do, because I stole it from somebody else. <laughs> it's, not, it's not unique with me. Okay? Let's close in prayer. Father God, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for uh, the way you are committed to telling stories over thousands of years. Lord, you do it slowly and you do it so intentionally so we can learn. And I pray that we would be faithful as we teach our children and our grandchildren these stories. Uh, And not just because it's an interesting story, but that we also have the eyes that we can explain what these stories mean. Lord, help us all to see that we are living in your creation. We are subjects of you. And we don't just live in a world of facts, but we also live in a world of meaning and the meaning that you have put in these things, in these stories, in these symbols. Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, and I pray that we would see the unity and the harmony and the beauty of your word in both testaments. Lord, help us as we work out the implications of our own theology and uh, as we become self-conscious, as we wrestle with the text, trying to understand, I pray that you would give us understanding. And I pray that as we move to corporate worship now this morning, Uh, that you would be glorified, that we would be strengthened, and that you would send us out of here renewed, strengthened, and ready to live for your glory in the week ahead with whatever you put in front of us. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for these people, Lord. I pray for each one that your spirit would be at work sanctifying us and giving us assurance uh, of our own salvation. pray this all in the strong name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.